take a, a, a critical look at using standards to do testing and my it's a it, this might turn into a bit of a rant but uh, hopefully it brings out a couple of key questions that you should address as you're setting up running tests of any kind and in particular if you're thinking you're doing reliability testing or environmental testing what is it you're really accomplishing and what is it you're trying to accomplish um, All right, let's see if I can move on here. It looks like the slides are working for you, Mark. That's good. All right, so there's any time I deal with a product or a system or a vendor for that matter, um, one of the questions they really don't expect uh, or, or whoever I'm working with is expecting, and maybe it's because I've, I'm a reliability person and think about how things don't work, is, is simply ask what will fail. And you almost always can expect, especially from the sales engineer, oh, it'll, it won't fail. It, it'll work for you forever, it'll never fail. Well, we know that that is patently not true. And it does take a bit of trust on both sides to have a discussion about what's not, what may fail. And, you know, I really wanna know Will it fail cold? Will it fail hot? Will it fail catastrophically? Will it fail in early life? Or will it have a wear out mechanism uh, due to some phenomena that maybe we have designed into our product we need to adjust for? If we know how something will fail, we actually know something that we can, we can take action about and, and take mitigating actions and do, make a, an informed decision. But if we don't have that discussion, it's really, really hard uh, to move forward. And, and I know all of you have been in situations where you say, you know, yeah, this product, will, we've tested it and we've done all these things and we've never had a failure and customers never send us anything back. And I says, well, it's a diode. You know, it costs a fraction of a cent. It's not worth their time to send it back to you. Right? And if you, with that attitude, why would they send it back to you? Because you will not admit that your product um, could actually fail some way. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually had, it was an IC packaging guy that was telling me that they've never had a failure, ever. And he says, well, what's your yield on your factory? He goes, oh, about 60%. I'm like, well, that sounds like a lot of failures to me. All right. The next question, if they're going to talk about what's going to fail, is when, right? And, and, I'm, and we'll explore these in much more detail a bit later, but basically, if it's, say, a corrosion problem, and it's pretty normal, you just oxygen takes it apart, well, when? You know, next week? That would be bad. Uh, in 40 years? You know, maybe we could live with that. It's... And what we're looking for is really a distribution, but uh, we'll, we'll dive into more of that a bit later. And then what's your evidence, right? And that's where the testing part comes in. So somebody tells me that they, they believe their product is going to work for our application for 20 years and not have a problem, no failures, right? Well, where do you, what do you base that on? What's the evidence? 
is it field data with similar products? Is it testing? Is it qualification? Is it process control? What exactly are you basing that conclusion on? And show me the data is, is the common phrase I would have in this part of the discussion. And usually this string of questions will either completely shut down the conversation and they won't want to talk to you anymore, or you have a, a real substantive conversation about is this product or this system or this component suitable for your application, right? And you can actually make intelligent decisions based on the results of these discussions. And the easiest one is when they just refuse to answer any of these things, and then you go, well, we're just making a guess here, so might as well pick any decision you want because there's no data, there's no evidence, there's no information here to, to help you, right? But if, let's say at some point, your vendor is going to do testing or you need to do some testing. Your program manager or product manager says, yeah, we need to test this, All right? Well, so what is it exactly you want to learn, right? What is it you need to know? And, and there's a, usually a, a few types of questions people want to know, and, and it depends on where you're at in this thing. But, you know, if you're going to do reliability testing, and, and I'm lumping environmental testing into this and to kind of draw the line, and this is arbitrary, uh, with the, the compliance testing that many organizations need to do. Even though we as reliability professionals often get involved with all kinds of different sorts of testing from process control and, and compliance and safety, I'm kind of focusing today just on, on environmental and, um, and and life testing, those two types of things. But what is it we need to know, right? What is it we're trying to learn or, or do? And this is one of those fundamental questions that even if you're doing a similar product and you have a worked out test plan from a previous product or similar product, well, why are you doing it? What is it you actually physically need to know and by when and to what degree? I mean, so every test should have a, a pretty clear chain of, I, I'm going to call it chain of custody, but an, a link back to somebody in some part of your business and or your customers that need that information to do something with it. It's, if it's just a checkbox, why bother, you know? Take a break and save a lot of time. So let's say we're going to do some testing, and we, we've got a couple different scenarios here that this, this may occur. Now, prototype testing, you know, when we're building a product and we're building up prototypes, we're, the earliest lesson I had from prototypes was when I was a manufacturing engineer, and a design engineer comes down and says, here's the specifications to build this product. Uh, could you make some samples for us? We need, you know, X number of samples. All right, yeah, no problem. And we went off and, and built it. What I didn't expect was the next day that same engineer comes back and says, so how did the build go? You know, what worked and what didn't work? What issues did you have? I'm like, I don't know. We didn't even pay attention to that. We just built it. And he goes, oh, well, 
I need to know, is this difficult to build? Were there any issues? Was there any problems? Does it take longer or does it work faster? I, I need to know, can we actually make these things? Oh, okay, I, I can go do that. And so we prototype testing at the earliest stage is just, can you actually assemble this thing, right? Now, he took the samples away and, and the team went off and did a bunch of testing on it. And did it produce the right functions? Did it have the right resilience? Did it, and they did some life testing and did a bunch of other stuff on it, off these prototypes. Now, one of the things that I thought was phenomenal was that we only ran one prototype and then they went into production. And so one of the things they were not interested in was what about variability? different lots of materials that we're using, or different uh, scenarios of the variability in our production line and so on. When we're building prototypes on that production line, it was pretty much hand carried all the way through because we were trying, it was something relatively new for us. Same basic processes, but new. And so in building the prototype, we built it in a different way, attention wise, I should say, then, then we do a normal product. And so we got it built, but it was crafted, if you know what I mean, instead of being production. And so we weren't really learning about production in that realm. Later I learned more and more about what we're trying to achieve and trying to learn so we could go to production a lot easier. But the gist of dealing with these prototypes from a designer's point of view is, well, does it work? Right? And the complement of that is, well, what doesn't work, whether it's manufacturing processes or functionality. We're also trying to figure out what are those mechanisms, right? Um, I know Kirk and I talk about it all the time on the Speaking of Reliability podcast, is that when we go to uh, testing, to one of the objectives is to figure out, well, what fails? What is the things that we didn't anticipate that create a failure? And we can learn something from that. And those are, there's gold, there's nuggets there that, uh, that is very, very useful for the entire team. And so in this prototype testing, there can be many, many different things that we do to try to learn something. But basically what we're trying to understand is what are the failure mechanisms? Because it's not enough to say it just doesn't work. We need to do the failure analysis, right? And sort out what exactly is causing this problem? What's the underlying phenomena and let's let's sort that out because once we understand the failure mechanisms then we can do something about it but first you got to find them right now one of the things that many many teams do during the development is they do environmental testing right so we're, our products are going to be used by customers somewhere Right. My earliest uh, introduction into environmental testing was using the mill standards and it was um, outdoor benign was one of the common environments our products were being used in. Another one was aircraft cabin, which I imagine was inside the aircraft. And then there was aircraft exterior, which would like be the engine cowling and sensors that are on the outside. And there was outer space never really got to work on a product that was an outer space environment. Um, and, and so on. There were, I don't know, eight or nine different military classifications of environments. And the trouble was is that they were 
pretty broad and very generic to worldwide weather conditions because the military didn't really, and honestly didn't know where they were going to take these products. So your product had to work in the jungles, it had to work in the desert, it had to work in the Arctic, it had to work in, 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 in cities and so on. It, the environment was pretty broad. And, but the purpose of environmental testing, and I think it gets confused with reliability testing oftentimes, is that we're just trying to see if it works. If it's hot and humid, does the product work? If it's cold, does it work? Is it covered in dust and sand? Does it still work? And it's really, in my mind, more on the, um, more on the um, quality side, right? What we do get involved in it with reliability work is because if it's something doesn't work, right? If it fails a drop test, for example, or uh, one of my favorite tests that I got a chance to do is use fire ants. Um, there's a lab in Austin, Texas, years ago, at least there was, that would test your, your um, uh, equipment for susceptibility to fire ants. And apparently those little cre creatures would eat through insulation to get closer to the electromagnetic field. And it was uh, uh, electrical and water meters that, uh, yeah. It, it is pretty cool, Mark, but you want to make sure that you have people that know what they're doing and have the ants on the other side of the wall uh, for doing that is my advice. I didn't even go into the state to have it done. I just sent products down there and sent it, had it done. But the idea is, is that our customers are going to be using our products in some environment. Now, years ago, when, when I was working with Hewlett Packard, we sent uh, we had computers coming back from the auto industry, uh, servers actually, and they were heavily corroded with sulfuric acid. Um, it was the nature of the corrosion that was occurring. It was, it was sulfur in the air that combined with a little bit of moisture and created a sulfuric acid and corroded the electronics pretty quickly. And a phone call said, well, where are these things being used? You know, if this is a in an office or is it an environment or is there that much pollution there or what's going on? And they says, no, we're using these servers in the clay modeling laboratories. And so the clay had a high sulfur content and it was in the air and it corroded right through everything. So it wasn't the right product, nor was it the environment we were expecting a server to be used in. And so part of the challenge of doing environmental testing is what environment? What are the criteria and what's the range and what's the, and so on. And this is a lot of marketing, a lot of understanding your customers, a lot of surveying and so on to really understand this thing. Now, there are lots and lots of environmental tests out there. Mill Standard 810 lists, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them all together. And there's French standards and British standards and US standards and ANSI standards and so on that go into it. We'll take a look a couple of these a little bit later. The hardest part is, well, which tests apply? And are those ranges that are in that standard test for the environment relative to our product and our customers? Do they make any sense related to them? Right? Does it make sense to test something uh, for 
uh, outer space with the radiation exposure, and Mark, you mentioned that, that our products would see that they don't see when they're on the, on the surface of the Earth or underground, if our products aren't going to be used then. It's expensive to test things that you really don't need. Likewise, it's expensive to let your customers discover failure mechanisms for you, especially when it affects a large proportion of your product. Now, the, the clay modeling realm for those computer corrosion was followed up by returns from Korea, from Seoul, Korea. And we had very similar style of corrosion. Now, the products, the servers lasted longer there, but they still were this, this, this acid-based corrosion. And we learned there that the office buildings would leave their windows open during the weekends and overnight. And the air pollution was sufficient enough. And because of the windows were open and the air conditioning, the HVAC systems were shut off, we would get condensation on the electronics. And then the pollution carrying the uh, sulfur and, and chlorines and other things um, would create acids and corrode our products. It just took longer. Um, one of the things I took away from that is don't go work in a, in a clay modeling shop. And, and another thing we do is life testing. Now, there are standard life tests. They're, they exist. They're actually called high temperature over life tests, for example, is one of the common ones. And the hard part here is that anytime we do it in an accelerated test, we really need to know um, what's the failure mechanism. Right? It doesn't do us any good whatsoever to do a hot, dry environment testing for life, high temperature over life, for example, in a chamber, when it's corrosion that's the primary stress that will cause our product to fail. Right? If I go high temperature over life, I'm pretty much drying everything out, and it just keeps at a constant temperature, and it's no mixed flowing gases, for example, are introduced to it. Now, if I know it's corrosion based on acid, I would do a completely different test. And so the, the, very much the hardest part here is deciding well, what testing you're going to do. Now, the second part that I have the biggest trouble with uh, coming from a standard like the high temperature over life test is, all right, I go put it at 115 degrees C for you know 615 hours, and so? What does that mean, right? If you pick the wrong failure mechanism that's related to temperature affecting the time to failure for that mechanism, and we go back to our favorite erroneous equation, as some people would call the erroneous equation, but it, it applies for chemical reactions, like corrosion, for example. And we know that we can cause it to occur faster if all of the other elements are there. And so let's say it's diffusion or it's corrosion or something like that. We're doing all the testing correctly, but we're at a higher temperature. Now, in a carefully constructed accelerated test, what's included is a way to translate those results back to use conditions. Now, it's, I went through about a dozen here this week looking at standard tests, and not one of them included a translation of how do you interpret this result back to use conditions, right? 
Not very many people operate their product, say a, a computer server, at 120 degrees C. And so testing it at 120 degrees C is by a logic, I think, uh, an accelerated test. But how do I translate that back to my conditions if I'm running it at 30 degrees C, for example, or 20 degrees C or 15 degrees C? How do I interpret how long that product will last? And which failure mechanism is relevant for this particular testing? And I'll, I'll show you in a few minutes here one of the standards that actually talked about it, but they missed this key piece. How do you interpret the results? How do you translate it back to where you were? Right? Now it becomes this life testing from standards and environmental testing from standards are often done at the product level. And in which case you've got many different failure mechanisms competing to cause failures. And each with its own activation energy if driven by temperature and a chemical reaction or some other phenomena or formula that relates the stress to its time to failure. And they all don't accelerate at exactly the same rate. So one of the hard parts to understand is that just because I'm running a high temperature test or a temperature humidity bias test, for example, I may accelerate something that really doesn't happen very often at normal temperatures. But because the, its response to temperature is more pronounced than, than other failure mechanisms, it dominates the testing but it's not relevant at use conditions. And so we, we mask or miss the mechanisms that we're really interested in that really can cause problems. They may have a, a lesser degree of response to temperature, but still occur at normal temperatures at an unacceptable rate. So interpreting these come back again to the failure mechanism. Right? We need to understand exactly what's going on and how those stresses that we're applying go to it. And that's just missing from standard after standard after standard of how do you, what's the acceleration factor? And how do you translate that? Right. Now basically, you know, prototype testing helps us understand can we build this and is it function as we expect it? It's pretty obvious. Environmental testing gets a little squishy because we often use these artificial in, um, environments in the lab, one usually one or two, sometimes three stresses max, when in real life people use all the stresses are being applied all the time. And we try to isolate it because we can control it. And it gives us some, I hate to use the word confidence, but it gives us some warm fuzzy that if I get it in temperatures, it's still going to work. Right? And then life testing gets even squishier. Just because I want a thousand hour in a temperature humidity bias or high temperature over life test, what does that really mean? Right? How does that translate? How do I make sense of that? How do I deal with that? Now, there's all kinds of testing conditions, right? My favorite is you give your product to a bunch of your employees or trusted customers and let them play with it. Right? Try it. Use it in normal conditions. It's all the stresses. It's all the use profiles. It's all of those stuff. If you do a careful selection and 
send it out to a range of folks in different uh, uh, use profiles and different kinds of environments and so on, you can learn quite a bit doing that. Now, it's, needless to say, that's very, very expensive. And if your product's expected to last for 10 years and you're interested in does it last for 10 years, well, it's probably a non-starter to suggest that you're going to hand it off for free to a thousand customers for 10 years and monitor it. That's why we invented things like accelerated testing, for example. In some cases, normal use conditions works just fine. And it's the way to go. And as the tricky bit here is, well, what's normal, right? Do we use worst case conditions? And is it really worst case? Or do we use some high percentile value or nominal or some range of these different things? If we're going to control the conditions, how do we do that? Now, one of them is my favorite test by far is the button pushing. Let's say you got a, a device and you have a button that people are supposed to use multiple times a day or multiple times a minute, say, in a game controller. How do you know how many times that dome switch button is going to work? Right? The data sheet says a million cycles. Well, in lab after lab after lab, I see these little pneumatic hammers or little automated cam systems that push the button. And there's no variability on it. Right? It's not a different angle. It's not a different stress. It's not a buildup corrosion or a debris. It's bang, 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 always the same. Now, sometimes that leads to unique problems, but sometimes it completely misses that when you hit it at an angle, the button slides off its base and doesn't work anymore. Right? And if you hit it straight on, it works great. So you got to be careful about setting up use conditions. And by far the best is give it to your customers. That's not always feasible for what you're trying to achieve. So back up and think about the variability of those use conditions. Right? What is it that depends on what you're doing? Now, back on this game controller thing, one of the questions I asked these guys was, you know, well, how often does somebody drop a controller? And so here's a question for you. How many times have you dropped your phone this year? Right? And I think I'm about here. Click that one. Um, right, what, what is it? This is just a simple survey with a few people, and we can get an idea. Is it 20 plus times, or is it a couple of times? Right? And then you could follow up the survey with, well, what kind of surfaces? What was the circumstance? How did this happen? You know, why did this happen? Right? It doesn't take long to do those kinds of things, yet I found that legal and, and marketing really don't want to ask questions about how customers abuse our products or how it doesn't work. So it's, but what's normal, right? Now, if you go to the standards for drop testing, uh, the most common one is that you drop it on each face, like the six faces of a phone, the front and the back and the four sides, and then each corner uh, three times each from a distance of a meter is one particular standard that's out there for this. And if it survives that, then you're passing the test. Well, that's a lot of drops, and it's on different issues. But I believe that test is looking for catastrophic failure from the construction of the device, not accumulated damage from repeated drops. 
or drops at a very high, like two meter height, for example. So it's, yet if that's where your starting point is and you pass that test, what have you really learned? Well, there's nothing catastrophic that's gonna destroy your product with a few drops in, on any particular edge or face or corner. And, but if your customer is saying, oh, we drop it 20 times a day, I'm thinking of the barcode readers for luggage handlers at the airport, that test is really not gonna be suitable, right? It doesn't really matter whether you pass that or not. It's way less stressful than the actual use conditions. So connecting it, an understanding of the use conditions back to say what the drop test protocol is or procedure is, is a good start, but don't count on this three drops per side and then you're done. How does it actually relate to your use conditions? And are you interested in like the glass breaking on the phone surface or are you, because if it gets enough of a hit at just the right angle, maybe that cracks it and you can do something about it. Or are you more interested in how many times can somebody drop it before we have a, a functional failure, right? And, and it's a completely different kind of test and different kind of failure mechanism also in many cases. Now, many of the tests that I find in, in standards, whether it's mill standards or ISO or IEC or AS, ASTM, which actually does really nice procedures um, and gives you lots and lots of options for conditions. But one of my tests that I've seen all through my career is 85% relative humidity at 85C for 1,000 hours. And it's also a variant that goes for 168 hours or a week. Okay, what's that for? Why those temperatures? Why that duration? Right? It's a fixed profile. I can pass that or not pass it. And either way, what, it, what does it mean? Why is it relevant to running a product at 50 RH at 20 C, right? Now, if I know it's electromigration, I can use Black's equation to work out an acceleration factor for this. Yet I've seen this test profile for solar panels, right? They, they were not ICs, in packaged ICs. And that's where I understand this test came from, is from Motorola, when they were first using plastic to encapsulate components. And they wanted to make sure that the lead frame was, was sealed in the extrusion or in the uh, uh, um, uh, construction of the, of, the, of the part, the molding of the part. And yeah. I like it, Mark, it's, it's, yeah, no, no 85, 85. Yet I see it in solar panels. I saw it in watches. I saw it in automotive stuff in the cabin of the uh, car and fabrics. I've seen it on apparel. I've seen it with bicycles. I've seen it on and on and on. It just seems to be the standard of standard tests and it's a standard profile. Yet the standard itself doesn't tell you what mechanism, what failure mechanism it's related to and why it's, how it connects one way or the other at all, right? And 
the same with thermal cycling. Now I understand zero to 100 because we stay away from freezing and steam, right? The phase transitions, right? Yet some products say they want a military criteria, so they go minus 40 to 125. And one of the interesting things in most chambers that can do minus 40 to plus 125 is that they use liquid nitrogen to get it down to temperature, which pretty much desiccates all the moisture out of the chamber. So even if you're that cold, nothing's freezing, right? The water is not freezing and breaking things apart, which is probably why they wanted it to be tested below freezing is that moisture is present on military equipment outdoors, right? And then when it freezes, it expands with a lot of force. But if you test it without the moisture, what, in, what exactly are you learning? Now, this is all conjecture on my part because it's not in the standard that there needs to be moisture there or not. And so same on the, on the steam side of it. So these fixed profiles are, to me, a starting point. But they, standard after standard after standard doesn't help you then translate this away to what your use conditions or what failure mechanisms are being used or in, in, included. I'm just going to mention the uh, accelerated conditions because now we have all the complexity of accelerated life testing with, with acceleration factors and understanding the mechanisms. And I already mentioned earlier is that it, if you have multiple failure mechanisms being accelerated at different rates, you can have masking of one mechanism versus the other. You can have models that, multiple models trying to interpret this result and so on. With accelerated testing, my guideline has always been understand the failure mechanism, make sure you understand the acceleration factors in the construction of that, and then design the test. And starting with the whole product and adding an acceleration and something fails and then trying to figure out what it means to use conditions is oftentimes not only difficult but impossible. So I, I advise a lot against doing that. All right. Another thing that's missing a lot from standards is variability, right? The, our customers don't... read the side of the box and say, oh, I got to stay within this range. They use the product, right? They use it in their factory. They use it on the outside. They use it in airplanes. They use it wherever they're going to use your product. And it's going to see whatever combination of forces are available at that time. For example, I think it was the iPhone a few years ago as they launched a new phone. It was all gee whiz, cool stuff. And Folks in New York City were getting off the bus, uh, going to work in a nice, warm, heated bus. And their phones would hit this cold air of their winters in New York City and would stop working. It was that transition in the speed of it and the extent of it, which you would think thermal shock is one of those standard tests, yet they missed that one, right? And I don't know why, I don't have the, I'm not privy to what was done or not done for that particular phenomena, but it did make the news. The other part that I find, and this is, goes back to these game controllers, is in button testing. Um, we were 
we were getting failures on a medical device. This is on a button on a medical device that was used in uh, ICU that were being destroyed pretty quickly. And so we went and watched how the nurses and technicians use that equipment, right? And this is, and in training, they pushed it with the fleshy part of their finger and did it just knowing they were being watched, right? But they weren't in a sterile condition in training. It was, it wasn't the same. In the ICU, they're wearing gloves, which are sterile. And so they would pick up a stylus that was also sterile, but then the tip would touch the equipment. But it had a completely different force profile and different way of interacting with the switches, which was orders of magnitude more stressful than a person's hand or finger pushing the button. And until we watched it, we had no idea that that was happening, right? And so the, the variability of just how people do stuff, closing doors, for example, um, the amount of force variables that can occur is phenomenal. And that's not even to mention all the different stages our products go through and the types of stresses they see just in a shipping container in the ocean, for example, is dramatically different than when it's stored in your, your uh, warehouse at your factory. Um, although in some cases it might not be. But the, the overall sets of conditions, and there's probably a standard for every one of these things, including vibration on the road in a delivery truck, for example, right? But does that profile, that stress profile, account for uh, a transport going from the docks in San Diego to Denver in the, given the road conditions and given the altitude change and given the heat of going across the desert, desert areas and so on. Does that set of stresses match to any reasonable standard? And I suggest not. So paying attention to those things makes a huge difference, right? The other part is these use stresses. Now, this is the mill standard 810. I just wrote down all the different kinds of stresses they list, they have standard tests for. They have altitude tests and temperature tests and acoustic noise and shock and uh, gunfire vibration, ballistic shock, all kinds of cool stuff. And then a few of them that are combined, temperature, humidity, vibration, and altitude. But none of these procedures, and nowhere in the 810 does it talk about how do you translate this set of ex exposures to normal conditions. How much sand and dust and how often and how long, right? If you're gonna immerse your product in water, well, for how long and how dirty is the water, right? What's in the water? Is there bacteria and fungus and viruses and insects and fish and everything else? Or is it just tap water, which has in some parts of the country has other things in it, right? Each one of these things provides a stress, right? And if you're only interested in, does it work under these conditions in order to say, is, can it survive this realm of conditions? And then I gotta think through, well, how often will it see rain, for example? If I'm gonna make something that's gonna be in the Arizona desert, I think there's parts of the world that get 300 plus days of sunshine. 
Well, UV resistance would be really, really important. But I also need to know my polymers and my coatings and paints and material set to what's susceptible. How does it break down in UV radiation? And then what's the time scale? Because the standard test gives it a, a criteria for exposing it in a standard way. Yet it may be too harsh or it may be too benign for what our particular situation is. It's one variable of that, right? Well, I remember I was working on a solar uh, collector um, for power generation, and they had a thousand suns. And so we created a test facility to create up to 2,000 suns of collected solar energy onto this chip. And the hard part was keeping it cool, taking the temperature out of it, all the heat out of it. But we wanted to be able to accelerate the chip due to sunshine, right? Double the sunshine that it's seen, the amount of energy it's receiving, and how does it behave? And, and it actually did pretty well. I mean, we were able to work out at different stress levels than a, a acceleration model for it. But it was very, very different than the standard test, which was take an unpowered, um, no sunshine involved, solar chip and put it, these uh, um, gallium arsenide chips, uh, and just heat it up and then measure its, its, uh, uh, its conversion, its efficiency uh, at periods of time. And it was deemed that the temperature would accelerate a particular failure mechanism where sunshine itself uses a completely different mechanism to degrade your component. And so that was where the, uh, they actually got a, um, a lot of traction on that. And at one time they were thinking about creating a new business just to create these testers. Um, but the, the idea is, is that you need to step through and think, well, here's the standard way to do this test, but is that test relevant to what I'm trying to do? Most often not. Now, a good number of these samples that, or uh, standards I looked through, um, some mentioned sample size, some didn't. Almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them, when they mention samples, either mention three samples, 22 samples, or 25 samples, or 77 samples. And so I did a little bit of math, because they all also included that if you have one or more failures, you, pa you don't pass the test. So they're doing the binomial statistic that they, if you pass this set of conditions, it's a go or no go, right? It's a binomial zero failure test. And so with three samples, one way to interpret that is that you have a 60% confidence that your reliability or the ability to withstand that particular set of stresses or better is 74%. So I have a 60% confidence of it, at least the 74% reliability under those particular circumstances, not counting accelerations and transfers and combinations and everything else. 22 samples is pretty easy. It's 90% confident, you're at least 90% reliable. Now, if this is a component and it has a potential to be a 10% failure rate, is that really what you want to put in your product, right? If you're making a product that needs to be at 98% reliable over five years, do you really want to test the subsystem to be 90% or better? Is that really useful for you at all? I don't think so. Now, you may be lucky and use a component and you can get 77 samples. 
Well, now you got 90% confidence of 97% reliable or better. Oftentimes, you'll see vendors go three sample, three lots. So they'll do 77 samples from three different lots. And they didn't do the math for that, but it gets better. But even still, for a discrete component, I need five nines or reliable or better for whatever duration I'm interested in. Because generally, the components really can't be driving your overall failure rate. That's usually not a good thing. So these tests, even when they're done with lots of samples, really don't provide a lot of information for your time to failure information, primarily because they're not test to fail, they're test to pass. And so you lose a lot of information out of that. Right. I could do, I think I did a whole webinar just on sample sizes, but let's take a look at a, a data sheet. This, uh, I left the names off of it. Some of you may recognize it. It's a capacitor, right? A simple, basic, discrete capacitor. And it's used and widely used in all kinds of electronic devices. And this is the list of tests they did. And board flex makes sense to me. Three-point bend test on a, on a ceramic capacitor in particular uh, makes sense because they, they need to be constructed well enough that they're not full overly sensitive to board flex, even small amounts, right? They can crack those things and cause failures. Uh, solderability, that makes sense. The manufacturers want to know that can I, can I actually assemble this thing and do this? That's all great. And they listed the references and some notes on the inspect testing that they did. So let's take a look at a couple of these, right? Well, first off, you see this on all kinds of different products a long list of these standard things. But what I didn't get from this list was, well, which ones are performance related and which ones are reliability related? And there isn't any mention in on this data sheet of, well, how reliable does it need to be under any particular condition? So I don't know how, what's the criteria to pass? Now, thermal cycling is a common test for accelerated testing and for solder joints, which they're, they're probably interested in here, but it's not clear. And that test is for thermal cycling, and we'll take a look at it closer. And then the, the high temperature life, I like that one because it actually had life in it. And this might actually be that high temperature over life, but I think it was slightly different, it's no standard. So I, I looked those standards up, right? And so under temperature cycling, I thought this was one of the better standards. It actually said, this is to take a look, does your component work? Does the function work or is it degrade or fail under these thermal cycling type conditions? But more importantly, does it have the mechanical ability to maintain a solder joint, right? Is the solder joint designed with, for use with this component suitable for some duration. Now I happen to know, well, I didn't see it in the standard nor any mention of it. And there's a lot of variables, right? If you're using tin lead versus uh, uh, solder or lead free or some other exotic soldering system, there's lots and lots of different ways to, in, to do the acceleration factor. But let's say they're using sack solder, typical no lead solder that's used today. Well, there's formulas for this. Right? I can interpret the number of cycles, the range of the cycles, the dwell time, and I can give an estimate the number of cycles to failure. 
And if I run a thousand cycles, I basically am only testing early life failures. Because in my experience with 20 plus years of running accelerated testing and lots of times on, on solder joints, it takes five to 15,000 cycles under the normal conditions of these tests to get any failures, right? And so unless you have a really bad design or a really bad manufacturing process, this test is very unlikely to ever find a failure, right? And if you're only doing 25 samples, even if each one of them has 100 solder joints, you really are unlikely to find any failures whatsoever unless you have just a horrible design or horrible manufacturing process. So at the end of the day, you do a thousand cycles from zero to hundred degrees. So what? What is it you really learn from that, right? Other than you can build them. It doesn't really give us a time to failure or a reliability figure of merit of any kind, right? Just because you pass that, well, you know you're not gonna get early life failures unless something in your process or the manufacturing line changes which that never happens, so don't worry about it. Now, the high temperature over life, or the high temperature life, was a mill standard. They did not specify sample size. They left that completely open. And they left it open because some people want to do qualifications. Some are just exploring a new technology. Some are just running the test. And so on this particular data sheet, they didn't list sample sizes. So we really don't know how many they did. And in the testing, in the document under the purpose of this test method, is to see if the electrical mechanical characteristics still work, right, at this elevated ambient temperature. Now, it specifically doesn't say anything about translating this to use conditions or use temperatures, right? So just because it survives at 85RH or 85C, for 168 hours, it only means that it survived those stress conditions for that duration, and that's it. It doesn't mean anything about it'll last five years, right? If I know the failure mechanism and we have a, a, an acceleration factor model, we could probably calculate it out. But the intent of the test is to run your samples under these conditions, measure them, and if they all work, you pass. And then the vendor can list pass. We did all these tests and we're good. And I also noticed on this uh, data sheet, they didn't list that they passed. They just did these tests. That third question, right? Where's your evidence? Where's the data? Um, might be handy there. There's not much we can draw from a conclusion on this. So basically the questions are, what are the specific failure mechanisms, right? What exactly is going to fail? And talking to a vendor or your design team or wherever, you're really, really interested in the mechanism because then you can do something about it. You might be starting with failure modes and working your way back to mechanisms. You may be starting with hints or clues or FMEAs and things like that to, and then pick your way towards getting to mechanisms. But if you're working with a vendor, you really need to have that discussion saying, all right, we're planning on using it in this application with these temperatures and this kind of conditions. What's the most likely thing that's going to fail, right? 
what is it exactly? Is it the solder joints? Is it electromigration? Is it corrosion? Is it what? Because not knowing that, setting up and running any standard tests is really folly, right? If this product is really susceptible to vibration, but we only run temperature tests, we have wasted time and learned nothing. And then when will it fail, right? You don't want an average. You definitely don't want MTBF or MTTF. But we're almost always interested in when's the first failures, when's the first percentile. And if we can get a distribution of time to failure, that's great. That's the holy grail what we're looking for. And then what are the, how many samples? What kind of variation is occurring? What kind of variation in the test stresses were you using? What kind of controls were used? How were you monitoring it? I could go on and on with tests that, well, we, we put 100 samples in the oven <clears throat> and we came back a week later and tested them and they were all good. Okay, so, <laughs> what, what temperature? Um, where is it active during, in the chamber or not? Were you monitoring it during the chamber? Is it uh, supposed to, are you baking it out so we could solder it and that's just what it's doing and you could solder it and it was great? Or was it supposed to look for electromigration, in which case you need voltage, right? Give me the details here. Let's figure out what exactly you did and how we can translate that to how you think it's going to fail. And otherwise, there's not, we can do it ourselves, I suppose, is one way to look at it. So anyway, <clears throat> by no means have I touched every standard and looked at all kinds of stuff, but I've worked in the toy industry and the high-tech industry and automotive industry and aerospace industry and, and dozens of others, and I've looked at standards from around the world over the years, and there can write beautiful procedures of how to set up and, and conduct an experiment. But they, by and large, and I'm sure there's exemptions out there, but by and large, they don't help you interpret those results. And that's my beef with standards, whether environmental or life testing. So we talked about a handful of questions. What will fail, when will it fail, and what's the evidence? And when you're setting up to do testing, Standards are a natural place for us to go, and sometimes it's required by our customers. Yet those questions still apply. Are, in order to understand, are we using the right stresses in the testing? And when it becomes important, when we are getting failures, the natural question that our teams are gonna have and our customers have is, well, when will this occur, right? How do I translate these stress conditions to use? And I think I said it earlier, I think it even in the abstract, is you know, some standards are useful, uh, but they're all wrong. All standards are wrong, but some are useful. And it's a place to start. You know, what are the types of things that others in our industry are concerned about for these type of class of products? And it still leaves a lot of work on the table to get it right.